Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. The movies are a popular media, meaning they generally have to appeal to a wide audience to pay their way. Not a ridiculously wide audience necessarily, though most producers may beg to differ here, just wide enough. But of course, some movies require rather a bigger audience than others. If you've shelled out hundreds of millions of dollars on, say, Top Gun Maverick, you're hardly likely to be satisfied with merely respectable business. Captain speaking. And we're off. On the other hand, small art films have more modest ambitions. They can often cover their costs, as they used to say, from people coming in out of the rain. And once those costs are covered, there's a good chance you can make another one immediately. Welcome to Los Angeles, Mr. Fink. Excuse me? Howdy, neighbour. Are you a writer, Mr. Fink? Actually, I'm writing for the pictures now. Oh, it's an exciting time. With a popular medium, you need to be able to predict popular taste. What is the public demanding? What do they want? Well, the one thing you don't do is ask them. They're the ones who demanded snakes on a plane, you may remember, until they actually saw it. I have had it with these snakes on this plane. Well, this week sees more films that seem to have responded to a perceived popular demand. The prequel or origin story of the bumptious spaceman in Toy Story, Buzz Lightyear, is part whiz-bang movie for 10-year-olds, part rallying cry for the right-on in 2022. Well, either or, I would have thought. After a full year of being marooned, our first hyperspeed test flight is a go. Who are you talking to? Uh, no one. You were narrating again. I was not. Just doing the mission log. You do know no one ever listens to those. I know that. Narrating helps me focus. Meanwhile, a Kiwi film answers an undeniable demand for more local comedies with a slightly less noticeable demand for something bizarre and confronting. So it's told entirely in a made-up language, translated into slightly random subtitles, and to top it off, Nude Tuesday invites the entire cast to take their kit off. In the snow. <laughs> there may be a market for shivering middle-aged exhibitionists on screen, there may not be. There's a less strident demand perhaps for a smart, heartfelt film about one of the overlooked poets of last century, Siegfried Sassoon. But the film Benediction has been greeted with waves of respect and affection for its veteran writer-director Terence Davis. Name, Sassoon Siegfried. Rank, second lieutenant. Disease? I've had some sort of breakdown. Your lot is with the ghosts of soldiers dead. 
and I am in the field where men must fight. Warm, human, talented and self-deprecating, Davis was a delight when I spoke to him about Sassoon and Benediction. But first, Lightyear. Does it take you to infinity and beyond? Well, not quite. Let's get everyone home. Good luck, Captain. We're all counting on you! Roger that. The Toy Story films pushed their luck incredibly successfully, some might say. After not one but three popular sequels, you'd expect the Pixar people might have called enough. But no, after very little popular demand, you'd think, here comes a film entirely devoted to Buzz Lightyear. I can provide sleep sounds if you like. I have several options. Summer night, ocean paradise, whale calls. No, no, white noise is fine. Very well. Good night, socks. Good night, Buzz. Not the plastic toy, but the film that spawned the plastic toy, we're told at the start. Toy owner Andy bought the Lightyear figure after seeing what became his favourite movie ever. And this is it. The star of the brilliant Toy Story's favourite movie ever. So, no pressure then. A year of work for a four-minute flight. Isn't that something? (laughs) We're all ready if you are, sir. Well, let's go find out if this... We've got a breach in the perimeter. For some reason, Chris Evans has taken over voice duty from the original Tim Allen, though you can't see the join. Buzz Lightyear is part of a crew of Star Trekkers who've crashed on a distant planet, a planet of rogue vegetation that keeps grabbing people. Buzz Lightyear mission log. After a full year of being marooned on this planet... First test flight is a go. They think they've found a way off the planet of the creepers, and all it needs is for Buzz Lightyear, space test pilot, to see if it works. He takes off, comes back four minutes later, only to discover that years have passed on the planet. But he takes off and does it again. And again. Ready, Captain Lightyear? Ready as I'll ever be, Commander Hawthorne. This is exciting. A new adventure. I'm going to grant you four minutes to be off-planet, but then you come right back to us. To infinity. And beyond. Yes, relative time travel, with everyone getting older and greyer, except Buzz. I'm not sure if this is quite what your average seven-year-old audience wants to see. I am sure that the seven-year-old audience I saw it with started chatting among themselves at this point. Buzz Lightyear to Star Command. Come in, Star Command. Why don't they answer? Hey, hey! Shh! The robots! The what? What is happening right now? Anywho, Buzz finally returns to discover that his old boss, cool black lesbian Commander Hawthorne, is no longer with us, and the whole space camp has been invaded by gigantic robots. Well, at this moment, my audience perked up a bit. They do like gigantic robots. Alicia? Oh, no. That's my grandmother. But, Socks, how long were we gone? Meow, 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 meow. 62 years, 7 months, and 5 days. What? And Buzz meets a stray group of freedom fighters led by Commander Hawthorne's plucky granddaughter, Izzy. Well, I say freedom fighters, more would-be beginner freedom fighters. Junior woodchucks, if you will, though not particularly junior. Darby must be well into her 70s. I hope you're ready for action, because all we needed was a pilot. For what? To destroy the alien ship. I have a plan and I have a team. Darby can take any three things and make them explode. I do this and they shave a little time off my sentence. Okay. 
And Mo, played by Taika Waititi almost inevitably in a Disney film, is a middle-aged dingbat who looks, well, looks exactly like Taika Waititi. As always, he plays the one character in Lightyear that kids wholeheartedly like. And what about you? Well, I thought this was going to be like a fun boot camp workout thing. <laughs> but it is not. <laughs> Did I get it? Pretty close. <laughs> and either, anyone seen the harpoons? As for the rest, it feels both underdone and overthought, particularly by Pixar's usually sky-high standards. I never thought I'd say this about a film from that studio, but it was deeply disappointing. There was a big swirly do. Oh, I think I need a bag. No, no, please record your last words. Do not vomit inside the vehicle. Do not vomit inside the vehicle. If you are satisfied with this recording, speak or select uh. one. I understand the desire to represent the underrepresented in a popular film, but first you've got to try and make a popular film. I can't imagine this ever being a kid called Andy's favourite movie, or indeed anyone's. To infinity. Are you trying to get me to pull your finger? Don't fall for it. No, not like that. <sighs> Sorry, it's a thing your grandma and I used to do. Yeah. New Zealand film Nude Tuesday has been greeted enthusiastically since it debuted at the recent Sydney Film Festival with several glowing reviews. If your taste is towards, and I quote, an orgy of new age mysticism and middle aged nudity, then you're in luck. <laughs> But first, you have to overcome a few prejudices. It's told entirely in gibberish for a start, a sort of cod Swedish translated into smutty subtitles. If your taste is towards gags about body parts and innuendo, then you're in luck. Okay. We meet Laura and Bruno at a low ebb at their marriage. That's them saying, I'm sick of my life and me too, by the way. But help is at hand. They're offered free tickets to one of those embarrassing couples retreats that used to feature in saucy comedies a while back. Hey, Momo. This one is convened by one Bjorg, played by Jermaine Clement. I should add that Laura is played by another staple of Kiwi comedy at the moment, Jackie Van Beek of the Breaker Uppera's fame. Jackie also wrote Nude Tuesday, which was directed by Aman Ballantyne. And littered throughout the film are many other familiar faces. Yes, Tom Sainsbury shows up early playing angry motorist in Traffic Jam. And Chris Parker has the slightly more demanding role of gay chap at couples retreat happily taking his clothes off. Well, there's no escaping the fact that just about all the cast take their clothes off for a significant part of the film. Not in a blink-and-you'll-miss-it sort of way, and not in a just-the-attractive-cast-members way either. Everyone does it, in the freezing cold, I may add. I'm not quite sure who was demanding this, but whoever it was, they're in luck. 
The fact that many people have been hugely complimentary about Nude Tuesday and its willingness to show people shedding their inhibitions, putting their various legs in and out and then shaking them all about while the subtitles revel in their idiocy is proof that there's no accounting for taste. I have to say the gibberish thing was by no means the most off-putting part of the film. If the combination of COVID lockdowns and Netflix have done anything, it's taken the curse off the idea of subtitles. But I have to say that the comic potential of the middle-aged couple driving each other crazy rather wore out its welcome with me a while ago. Still, it would be a dull old world, yada, yada, yada. Okay. The fact is, despite the bizarre innovations, at its heart, Nude Tuesday is a standard relationship comedy. He's an insensitive idiot, she's desperately eager to please, and they're surrounded by support characters, all various shades of irritating. Now, I can hear some fans of Nude Tuesday protesting at this point. That's what comedy is, isn't it? And to make it even funnier, they all take their clothes off. Well, no, it isn't, is all I can say. And no, it doesn't. Writers are notoriously difficult to turn into the subject of a movie. They may create some of the most extraordinary images imaginable, but to the outside observer, they're mostly sitting at a desk trying to think. So few have exciting lives, though that's hardly the case with the famous war poets of World War I. Rupert Brooke, Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, their lives were almost too exciting. In the face of such slaughter, one cannot simply order one's conscience... Good morning, Doctor. We have a house magazine. I'm sure it would welcome a contribution. And I'll try to write something light and amusing. There's no need to go that far. Writers are notoriously difficult to turn into the subject of a movie. They may create some of the most extraordinary images imaginable, but to the outside observer, they're mostly sitting at a desk trying to think. So few have exciting lives, though that's hardly the case with the famous war poets of World War I. Rupert Brooke, Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, their lives were almost too exciting. Sassoon, surely one of the very few leading poets to earn a military cross for gallantry, is now the subject of a new film by distinguished British filmmaker Terence Davis. It's called Benediction, and I'm joined by Terence Davis on the phone from Britain. Thanks so much indeed for sparing the time. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. The war poets were hugely popular at the time in Britain, weren't they? Um, yes, but the real reputation began after after the war, because, of course, Rupert Brooke and Wilfred Owen were killed. Um, Siegfried wasn't. And I think that, A, not only affected him uh, as a human being, but I think there was always that thing that he wasn't quite up to uh, their standard. And I think he is. I think he's a great, a, a, a great poet. But what do you do when you've survived that war? I mean, it was just unimaginable. Mm. You know, uh, how do you carry on? And 
thank goodness he did carry on and write. And also that that, that Robbie Ross, when he said that he would not obey military orders, I mean, he was wanted to be court-martialed. And because Robert Ross knew everybody, he got him uh, to send to Craig Lockhart, which was, a, which was a, a hospital for shell shock. Robbie Ross was Oscar Wilde's publisher and friend, wasn't he? Yes, he was, and he really stood by him. He stood by people that he believed in. That's what he did. A lovely man. A, 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 a lovely man, clearly. And played delightfully by Simon Russell Beale in the film, I thought. He is lovely. He is just perfect. Like all people who have got great talent, you just say one or two things and they do it, and you think, blimey, how do they do it so quickly? <laughs> <laughs> the average take on the, on the film, in fact, was um, four. Oh, is that right? Goodness gracious. But in fact, the talent in the film is extraordinary. Some of them I had to look up. A lot of them are better known for their um, theatre work than they are for their TV or film work, but they're all incredibly distinguished. How hard was it casting such, I was going to say a period piece, because it's the 20s a lot of the time, and the 20s, it doesn't exist anymore. Those types and those voices and those faces are no longer around. No, they aren't. But it was a, a, between the wars. You know, it was very you know brittle and sophisticated. If you were lucky and had money, if it were, you went back to a you know a factory or a mine, mm. and they were very very privileged indeed. Um, but all you could say when you send uh, a script to someone, you know, would you let me know quickly? And a lot of them did self tapes, which are very helpful for them and for me. And you know, I was so. In ways uh, overwhelmed, Peter Capaldi, um, Anton Lesser, um, Gemma Jones. These are very distinguished people, and they were small roles, and they said, we want to do it, which is, you know, so kind. It's so kind. And all of them just, it's a joy to watch people not only interpret the text, as you had heard it, um, but bringing something new to it, and that makes the text really alive. At the start of this, I mentioned how difficult it is to turn a writer into a a biopic, into a film, because the thing that you know about them is the writing, and it's it's the least filmable thing that you can do. But you did something rather extraordinary with this, particularly the first part of the film, which is about his war years, and you included a lot of poetry at the start, and you illustrated it with contemporary footage of the time, didn't you? Yes, I, I, I knew that that was a thing to do for two reasons. One is practical. I can't raise more than five million on a film and you can't do justice to the trench warfare. But even if you have unlimited budget, you still can't do justice to what the war was like when you see that footage. It's much more powerful. It's much more moving and it's much more horrific. And I said all along it's got to be war footage. We illustrate the war with war footage and the psychological damage it did to him afterwards. The war footage is astounding. Seeing that footage and think that these cameramen were lugging around a very heavy hand-cranked camera and they went into battle, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe, just as equally it's astonishing even now after all these years to see the casualty lists after each battle. Oh, God, just terrifying. The structure of the film, Benediction, is, a, is very distinctive in a way because it comes out in essentially three parts. The first part, we talk about the war and particularly how, despite the fact he won a medal, he was very anti the war. I mean, was he a pacifist or was he just, did he just think that they were not conducting the war properly? Oh, no, I think he genuinely thought that they weren't conducting the war properly. 
um, and he says that in his statement, you know, and he uh, cared for his man, and they cared for him, who led from the front, always. They called him Mad Jack, he was so brave. I don't think he was a pacifist, but he did feel that the war had simply turned into battles of attrition that achieved nothing. And he wanted a corps marshal, actually, um, and it was Robbie Ross who got him sent to Craig Lockhart. He says to Robbie Ross, I was prepared to take the consequences. He says, we could be shot. Mm. He says, well, I was prepared to take that risk. And uh, Robbie Ross says, but the, the, those who love you would, weren't. But he wasn't a pacifist, I don't think. But I think he saw firsthand that you could not justify slaughter like that. The second part of the film is, I suppose, what they used to refer to as the Roaring Twenties, but it was a very English type of one. You you hinted at it before, I think, Terence, when you mentioned the fact that if you were rich, if you knew famous people, then you had a fairly charmed life. I thought it was fascinating seeing that charmed life because it's not something you see very often on film. The, the, the 20s was a huge reaction against the war, naturally, not only in Europe, but in America too, particularly in and around Paris in mm. the 20s. You know, I mean, some of the greatest painters moved there um, between the war years or just before. That was demi monde. I mean, that was, you're quite right, people who luxuriate in their luxury. They did. You can understand it having come through that war, but nonetheless, they were still very, very privileged. And really, it was in a way a very vapid kind of life because it was a kind of parody of real entertainment, if you see what I mean. And uh, there were so many of them. I mean, Edith Sitwell, I mean, reciting this incomprehensible poetry through a megaphone. I mean, <laughs> God almighty, what a way to spend your Easter. I did love that scene. I mean, because Edith Sitwell is one of those names that you know... I didn't realise that she'd done work with William Walton, who she clearly bullied into doing the music for her. Yes, uh, and, and the, the actress who played her did it wonderfully. She, we did the whole of En Famille, which is interminable, which <laughs> middle out. But she got it straight away. Mm. And, and I mean, God knows what these poems are supposed to mean. <laughs> God knows. The person who typified that era in England, I think, must have been Ivan Novello. And Ivan Novello got a, quite a, uh, an easy run in the film Gosford Park, but you're a lot more cruel to him, I think, in this film. He comes across as an absolute ratbag. Well, he is. He was. I mean, the three years that Siegfried Sassoon was with him, Siegfried destroyed his own diaries for those three years. And the, and the, the official biography of Ivan Novello sort of says, oh, well, these little piccadillos, they were harmless. And you think, no, they weren't. He used people and then dropped them. You mm. don't do that. That's a kind of sexual venality. And ironically, uh, I know um, a casting director here, and when I told her about us making this mm. film, um, she said, my father ran a theatre and Ivan Novello came with a show and was an absolute bastard. The thing that I couldn't understand, I mean, I, I guess in the end you just have to accept it rather than understand it, is the fact that Sigrid Sassoon had been so sharp and intelligent, I mean, tr troubled, obviously, but sharp and intelligent for the first act of the film, if you like, and then seemed to just give that up to go with somebody who was so obviously, you know, no good to him, but he still stayed with him, didn't he? Yes, I mean, like a lot of people, but I think it's particularly true of gay men, um, you fancy a person who doesn't fancy you or a person fancies you who doesn't fancy them. Mm. I, I think that's true in the heterosexual world because being attracted to someone is so sort of deep, like an animal instinct. You know, mm. you just feel it. You don't really know it. And he did fall in love and go with the wrong people. Mm. Um, the only time he didn't was, of course, with Wilfred Owen, and they never disclosed their love. And in a way, he's kept... Wilfred remains pure, if you like, and so does Rupert Brooke. He didn't because he had to survive and he had to 
live in what was then the modern world, and I think he found that very hard. I think we're so used to hearing how repressed people were back then, particularly gay people. But in your film, everyone seems to be rather public with their private lives. And, you know, I think that if you're on that social level, then you can get away with anything. Yes, you can. I mean, there's this, there are two photographs which are very telling. One of Hester when she was young in this grey silk gown, and she looks fantastic. Mm. And there's a, a contemporary one of Stephen Tennant, and he looks like a woman, although he's dressed in bags and all that. He, and he strikes exactly the same pose, and he was openly effeminate. I mean, he mm. was outrageously effeminate, but they got away with it because they were privileged. You mentioned Hester, and that's the third part of the film, which is many years later. He's, he's older now, and he's played by Peter Capaldi. And he married quite early. He married Hester, and they had a, a son. What was their relationship like? I mean, she clearly knew what she was getting into. I don't think she did, actually. Uh, I don't think she did, because when she says to Siegfried, uh, Stephen has told me all I need to know, that's very naive, mm -hmm. uh, because she needed to know more. And I think she genuinely was attracted to him and wanted to marry him, just as he was attracted to her, perhaps not physically, but seeing her as a sad kind of comfort. You know, the love of a good woman will change your life. But I think they were naive going into it. But I do think they went into that marriage with the best of intentions, and it just didn't work out. I think that the way you get Gemma Jones to play her, she seems very sad at the end. And he does too. I couldn't work out whether he was searching for a meaning or whether he was trying to look back on his past and try and make sense of that. Yes, I think he's looking back upon his life and what he finds is he's unfulfilled. He's unredeemed, if you like. He's been looking for a kind of redemption all through his life, I think, and he'd never found it because you can't find it in other people or art or religion. You just can't. And I know because I've been there myself. I've never found it either. So I, I did feel that at the end of the film he's looking back and thinking, was it worth it? Was it worth it? And apropos, his wife, when she's older, you know, you see a photograph of her when she was in Mull in her 50s, and she looks utterly, utterly defeated. The main question, I guess, is why did you call it benediction? I mean, who gets blessed? Does anybody get blessed at the end of this? No, but, but, but it's calling down a blessing that never comes. And I've been doing the same, and I've never found it either. I mean, I, I wish whatever it was, whatever it is, it would come and knock on the door, but it never has. That was the wonderful Terence Davis, writer and director of Benediction, and the film comes out in early July. And that brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.